It's Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team. And today I am really excited for a very special guest that we have on the Heartbeat, who I've actually been wanting to talk to for a really long time. So we have Sahil Lavingia, who is the CEO and founder of Gumroad, a e-commerce platform that helps creators sell their work and make money and share their work. And it's pretty amazing. And Sahil has been building his company for almost, I want to say seven or eight years. Yeah, eight years. Uh, yeah, eight, eight years. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Amazing. Mm, thank you. And has built this incredible company that's helped, I believe, millions of people all over the world. But what I would say Sahil might be most recently known for is publishing this incredible piece, which we'll get into maybe later, or maybe not, depends on <laughs> you know what we want to touch on today. But it was titled reflecting on how I failed to build my billion dollar company. That was that was the title. So mm. I'm going to pause right there, though, just to say thank you for writing it because it was tremendous. And the first thing, though, I want to dive into is the question that I ask every guest that I have on my show, which is, as a leader, Sahil, what is one thing you wish you would have known earlier? I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's hard because even though the path I ended up on and I'm still on sort of took a lot of weird turns and like wasn't necessarily fun the whole time like it turned out to be pretty great and you know I feel like if I gave myself like more knowledge like if I was more aware of how hard it was going to be I might not have done it you know and I think there's like sort of like a value to the naivety of it you know of like just saying I'm just going to solve this problem and like things will work themselves out eventually hopefully but I think on a more practical level I think just knowing like what happens when you raise venture and Having a plan to sort of consistently make sure that you're on the right path if you're going down that path. Because I think when we realized our track was not lining up, you know, with this sort of venture back trajectory that you sort of need to kind of keep going, you know, keep continue to raise money and, 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 sure. and all of those sorts of things. It was like too late in a sense. Um, and mm-hmm. I think if we had more insight, and this is, I'm sure, one of those things that, I mean, you could read about it, but you kind of have to almost <laughs> like make the mistake. Uh, I think life is full of those mistakes that you sort of need to make once you can read about them all day long, but Hmm. you don't really sort of understand it until you go through it yourself. And you're like, Oh, okay, that was the road bump that book I read was talking about. And now I understand, you know, you think you kind of get it. And then there's like this whole deeper level of understanding that you get afterwards. So I would say it was sort of that, you know, on a more actionable level, it's just like, know sort of what growth metrics you need to hit, be open about those things. And when you don't hit them, like consider sort of freezing hiring or whatever the solution might be. But I think I was almost too optimistic where I was like, this is just going to work out. It's fine. Sure. And then when things started not working out, it was like hitting the brakes really hard. That sort of whiplash that you get hurt a lot more than I think it might have needed to. It's interesting the duality that you described because in one sense you're saying had you known how much it was going to hurt, maybe you wouldn't have gone down the path. Yet at the same time, <laughs> had you known more, maybe it wouldn't have hurt as much. So it's it's interesting how you know those two are, are so related. And as you're speaking, you know I can definitely reflect on moments where I've felt very similar, where you encounter a mistake or something that you did wrong that you're pretty sure you knew was wrong, and you read it somewhere or someone told you, but then you're doing it and then you go. 
oh, that's why it's wrong. And it's totally different to internalize it in that really deeper way. I want to rewind back for a little bit because for a lot of folks who might be listening, they may not know, you know, your story really in depth or may not have read the piece yet that you wrote. I mean, you were 19 years old, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. When you started this company, you left your job as the second employee at Pinterest and you entered this company, I believe, and, you know, I'd love for you to sort of tell the story with like a lot of support, with a lot of backing, you were, you know, there were a lot of people. I mean, I think it's different than sort of starting a company where you're kind of stacked I'm not saying you weren't stacked against the odds, but you don't have like the the consistent narrative is, oh, you're going to fail. Oh, you're not going to do a good job. Like it sounded like actually in the beginning, you had a lot of people telling you that that rosy picture that you had painted, that optimistic path that you saw was actually real. Can you take us back for a little bit and, and talk to me about like, what was your mindset then? And how has that shifted to what it is now? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think I, at that point, you know, I was 19, solo founder, you know, second employee at Pinterest, I could design, I could code. I was like the perfect candidate to go out and raise a bunch of money really quickly, you know. And when I did, when I sort of I raised a million bucks in like five months or something like that from like company inception, it was like too perfect, you know. And, you know, people always talk about how fundraising is really difficult and it's yeah. a terrible process. And for me, it really wasn't like it was the easiest thing I'd ever done up until that point because and, <laughs> yeah. and not to brag or anything but you know no. just to sort of like yeah. just to make sure that people understand that like like I've definitely had my fair share of share of struggles but that was not one of them because I had sort of I was so perfectly pattern matching against you know I was wearing a hoodie I was young I was <laughs> you know relatively cocky like I had all these things that venture capitalists you know I was a dude right like that people look at it and they're like, this is the type of person that builds a company like Facebook or Microsoft mm. or Apple. These are all like young, sort of naive, probably too cocky, you know, college dropouts in their 18, 19, 20 year old age range are technical, etc. Right. And so yeah, I think it was definitely one of those things where I, I just felt like uh, the Truman Show or something where it's just like, mm. it was clearly like working and it was going to work because like it was just working, you know, like just by its nature, like all the things that people say about startups and the, and the journey that the journeys that you read about sort of in the, in the mythos of it, I was like just doing them all, you know, it was like getting a letter to Hogwarts or something, you know, like that, it felt just so perfect so that when things didn't hit that stride and, and, you know, there's like a laggy indicator, right? Because when you raise a bunch of money, you're not sort of accountable immediately, right? You have a couple of years to figure things out, to build the team, to grow the product. And so you're sort of assumed to be a success. And then when those things don't happen two years later, it's because they just didn't happen, you know, and then all of a sudden people sure. are like, oh, like, what, what happened to you, you know, versus, yeah, I think a narrative that a lot of people have, especially when you're not able to raise as much money as I was able to do, or if you decide not to, et cetera, you're sort of default failure, right? Hmm. And so it's like, it feels good, because I think you're sort of able to escape that. And if things don't work, like, well, you're just you were a failure. I mean, that's how all companies start, right? Right. Whereas I mean, so with let's me, dig it was into different. This for a yeah. second. Oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you here. No, no, no. I, I, I just like what I'm hearing almost. Like, I want to sort of debate this back and forth with you. Is like, sure. you're essentially questioning the value of maybe a degree of optimism. To what extent does like presumption of success actually hurt? Yeah. Someone's ability to be successful. Like, what's your take yeah. on that? I think if you end up becoming successful, you need some amount of presumption of success to get there you need some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy 
The truth is maybe something like eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 people that have that presumption of success don't actually get there, but you still need all 10 of those people to have it for that one or two people that do get there to get there. And so it's kind of this weird thing where you're, you sort of have to defy statistical odds. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you just need to, like, you just can't, you know, when people talk about, you know, Steve Jobs reality distortion field or founders being just super optimistic or drinking the Kool-Aid or all of these mm-hmm. sort of, sort of pithy quotes, like you kind of need to because you're doing something that's so difficult, so rare and so sort of like just probabilistically not going to happen. And sort of on several points, probabilistically not going to happen, right? There's multiple milestones you're going to have to hit that most people don't hit. Even if they hit the first three, they don't hit the fourth. If they hit all four, they don't hit the fifth. Because sure. you need to build a team, you need to raise money. And if, if you don't have that optimism, you're not going to be able to do those things that you need to right. be able to do to, to scale a company that quickly and, and to get to that level. Right. I, I so think. you're not discouraging that optimism. Yeah. Rather, what it sounds like is it should be coupled with perhaps a deeper rigor or, yeah. I, or I, you know, I don't yeah. want to put words in your mouth. Like, yeah. what do you yeah. feel like that optimism should have been coupled? Or here's another way to phrase the question for you, Sahil. Like, and I don't know that you would ever want to do this, but like if you could rewind the clock, right, and yeah. have some sage come visit you mm-hmm. at 19 or 20 years old or, you know, ghost of yeah. Christmas past to sort of warn you of the foreboding future or just to be like, hey, man, like take a look at the numbers or, yeah. you know, be less confident about this or have, a, you know, yeah. whatever that advice would have been. What would have that have been? And then two, would you have listened to it or would have that even mattered in the end? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, I think the way Gumroad ended up working is we found a market. We got product market fit to some degree. You know, it just turned out that that market just wasn't as large as we were expecting. Right. And so I think if we had done a ton of market research up front, if that was the advice, like make sure you know how big the market is, there's a good chance that we might have been like, look, in 10 years, like the creative market is less than a billion dollars a year. You know, it's the independent creator market, right? If you include Marvel and Disney, right? Sort of a single Marvel movie is sort of equivalent to like every pot, more than every single podcast, right? In revenue. It's early days. I'm not saying it will always be like this, but it's, it's going to take a lot of time. And I think in the, when you sort of think about the economy as a whole, it's easy to sort of, to, I think, forget that like how small certain opportunities are relative and how big these opportunities need to be in order to build a billion dollar company within one, right? In service of one of these sort of these circles of whatever market. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I do think you need to be optimistic. But I think, you know, there's that quote from like Ronald Reagan or Hillary or somebody that says, uh, you know, trust but verify, uh, which I think is like a good way. It's like you can be optimistic, you can assume good faith, you can be confident and ambitious, but you should have some process to make sure that, okay, like these assumptions, these sort of hypotheses that you had, that you built your ambition upon, right? Yeah. You, you know, you had ambition, like in Gumroad's case, like I really, I wanted to enable creators to do stuff, right? To sell content, share their work, earn a living, doing what they love. Like what assumptions go into that? Like what are the inputs that make a product like Gumroad interesting? Well, like probably a certain number of creators that sort of want something like this. Why do they want it? Like what are the inefficiencies in the market? Can you prove that those inefficiencies actually exist? Can you make those things more efficient via software like Gumroad or are there other regulatory burdens or these other things, you know? Um, so I think I wish I had more of a framework around like, okay, these are the set of assumptions, right? This, this, kind of like writing a paper, right? Like these are the, hmm. the things that we believe 
And if these things are true, then this is the result of this test of this experiment. And if that ex- result is not true, it's not a billion dollar company. It's a hundred million dollar sure. company or a five million dollar company or a total failure. No one uses it ever. That roughly means that there's a disconnect, right, between some of these assumptions. Yep. And so I think that's something that I, I wish I had a more statistical and sort of scientific bent about. Yes. But, but same thing, right? Like if it's the whole faster horse versus like, you know, build a car right? Like you don't know some of these things are so new abstract that sometimes you just have to kind of go out and do it. And I think that's the the beauty of venture capital is that you can say, Hey, I'm going to raise some money. And then for five years, I literally don't have to do anything else. I can just think about this problem. And that's the, you know, that was the mentality, right? It was like, I'm going to, I can design and code. I literally don't have to even hire anyone if I don't want to, I can make this money last forever. I'm really interested in this problem. What happens if I spend five years thinking about it? That's the bet that investors were making, right? Like what, Mm -hmm. what's the value of this kid spending five years of his life working on this problem or this set of problems or this set of users, uh, creators, right? I mean, clearly a tremendous amount of value came out of that. Was it sort of successfully captured via Gumroad? Was it like a good investment? Probably not, at least for the for the investors, right? But that's just the way it goes, right? And I think sure. it's one of those things where like you kind of understand it intellectually, like every NBA player or high school basketball player knows the, mm-hmm. the chance of them becoming LeBron James is probably not super high. But you're going to try to become LeBron because you, the person that became LeBron had to think that, you know? And there's yeah. still value, right? There's still, I think value to not getting to that point. You're still having fun. You're still learning. You're still building a network. So I think if those things aren't happening, then definitely the sacrifices that you're probably making may not be worth it. But you know, Mm -hmm. that's sort of the thing that I try to remind people is that like, even though I failed, quote unquote, right, like I still every day I was learning, I was having fun, I was meeting people, I was, you know, working with awesome folks. And those things, I sort of cheated. Like if I bootstrapped Gumroad, I couldn't have done those things, you know, as easily, right? Like Mm -hmm. VCs basically subsidized that lifestyle for me for, you know, seven, eight years, uh, because they thought maybe there's a chance that this is gonna, you know, give me a 30x return or whatever. There's so many different pieces here I want to to unpack with you here, Saho, because I mean, your quote unquote failure only to depending on how the person defines success, right? So I want to ask you about that in a second and and how you define success and how the 18 or 19 year old version of you define success versus how you define it now. But the other thing I wanted to touch on before we moved on to that was this idea of holding two things that seem to be in tension with each other, you know, at the same time. So you saying that, you know, having an optimism to be something that statistically most people will not be, but to maintain that vision and that clarity of wanting to be that or create that. And then the second thing is so to have a rigor and a sort of scientific and methodical approach in how you try to get there. And there's a couple things that I feel like, and to sort of interject my own thought on that is the first thing it made me think of was one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it's written by this academic on management. His name is Peter Sange. He wrote this book called The Fifth Discipline. For folks listening on the podcast, I've definitely mentioned his book before. And he talks about this tension. He calls it creative tension, which is where you are right now and where you want to be, which is your vision. And it's the tension between the two places, right? That helps you make that progress. However, what the best leaders do is they maintain that sight on that vision that you're talking about, right? That belief that, okay, I'm going to be LeBron James, right? Even though statistically, I mean, I'm most likely will not 
But to have that vision while at the same time remaining as committed as possible to seeing current reality for what it is. So what are the assumptions in my business? What are the metrics I should be tracking? You know, what, what are the inputs that I can actually control? Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll sort of mention is, and this might play into when we talk a little bit about success here in a second, is I think a distancing of self-identification with what that vision is. Like a desire to not want the vision so badly that you sacrifice the clarity of seeing things as they are. Because so much is not in our control as leaders and as business owners. And I think we sort of have this mythology about being a leader and, oh, you know, I did A, B, and C and it was hard and it worked, but now, and now we're here and it's like, yeah, it worked, but why did it work? Was it all you or was some of it the market or your competitors failing or, you know, timing and anywho, point being is I think there's something also to be said of this distancing of, you know, wanting something so badly that it clouds our view to be as methodical and scientific in our approach. That was sort of my, mm-hmm. my thought as, as you were speaking, but success, right? So, you know, you're saying, yeah, you know, maybe was it, was it a, you know, success in terms of maybe an investment, like maybe not, but, you know, I felt like it was, you know, you, you gained all these other wonderful life experiences and learning and you know, you're helping millions of people still with the company. So let's talk about how, how do you define success or how do you think a leader should be defining success? You know, everything you know now, and how does that maybe contrast to how you would have answered that question at age 19? Yeah, I mean, definitely at 19. And one of the great things about Twitter was I tweeted, you know, in 2011, eight years ago, like I just had the idea for my first billion dollar company, right? And it was, I sort of, (laughs) looking back, it's like, you know, looking into someone's brain, right? Eight years ago. (laughs) timestamp. Yeah, it was like a little time capsule. And, you know, failure in the context of the article, right? It's titled, Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company. And so sort of very specifically, I had this goal to build a billion dollar company. And I sort of failed up until this point, at least I failed to do that. And success and failure are all contextual, right? There's certain phrases that like, sometimes people say that don't come with the context. Like, for example, like I need to go to the gym, you're missing a second half to that statement needs require context, you need something to do something else, right? Nothing is necessary without that clause. So anyways, I think success is always relative, right? So is failure. I think it's, there's sort of relative absolutes, right? Like death or something like that. Sure. Um, But even then, you know, people will debate that too. So I think for me, like success, you know, as a 19 year old kid was building a billion dollar company, but even that is masking, I think, sort of deeper things like having influence, building something of tremendous value for people, being known for doing those things, like the Mm -hmm. ego component of that. The idea of being a billionaire or having a billion dollar company and running it was probably honestly secondary. It's a very service level interpretation. And and even I think back then I was probably like, yeah, I want to build a billion dollar company because that's what the industry respects. But the reason the industry respects it is because that's the best way or one way at least to measure value creation, right? Impact, influence, someone's how smart someone is, right? Just like how good they are at their job. Is that true? Not really. It's basically impossible, I think, to measure out, like how smart someone is, right? That what does that even mean? How do you measure something like that? Is it? Yeah, like I don't. Why I don't know. Matter? Why does it matter? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So you know, like it's it's complicated, right? Life is is weird like that. I think now I sort of just take like a very simple approach to it, which is like, am I happy? Am I learning? Am I growing? Mm-hmm. And if those things are true. It's a very experiential thing, you know, like life is yep. a series of experiences for me and 
am I having those? <laughs> like, am I having good ones? Um, yes. And as long as I am, I don't think super hard about sort of the financial aspect of things. But I do sort of sort of acknowledge that it is like sort of from a place of privilege that I can do that. You know, I have a profitable company, it's sustainable, I yep. run it, I don't have a board member anymore. You know, I can work remotely, I don't have to be in a specific geography anymore. And so it's like, I have ultimate freedom, you know, <laughs> so it's like, I have to define success in a way that makes that okay. You know, um, but then also, <laughs> like, I think, um, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with someone saying like, you know, success for me is a million dollars in my bank account or whatever. Yeah. I think as long as people acknowledge that, like, is that something you're, you can control or is that just a sort of a North star to make sure that you're sort of a, a filtering mechanism, right? For like, okay, am I, you know, just like you were talking about the idea of the creative mm-hmm. tension, right? Behind what I might be able to do one day and what I'm doing today and the, sort of the actual reality of it. And yes, I, I kind of think of it like, there's like, you know, when you play Mario Kart and there's like those shortcuts, right? And you don't have to take those shortcuts, but being able to take them, like being in a position that you would be able to take it if you if you had the chance, that's kind of how I think about it. Is like, I'm not trying to build a billion dollar company, but I want to be in a position to that if I do have the chance, I'm going to be able to raise the money to go do that or build the team to go do that or and you know, and those things bound me, right? Because it bound mm-hmm. me to raising money. It bound me to hiring a team because being flexible enough to go pursue that opportunity for Gumroad, you know, like I could not do that if I was living in Provo, Utah, like I am today. So I, I sort of have flipped it and I'm like, okay, well, those things that are bounding me, how do I get out of this? How can I actually be incredibly open to opportunity? And um, to me, that's what's almost like that's what success is now is that I have freedom. If something appeared tomorrow that was just like a super compelling opportunity, would I be well placed to respond to it and to attack it it's not even the success of doing the attacking or or taking (laughs) advantage of the opportunity it's just being in a place in which i can decide to do that that i have the choice and i think part of it was going through that period like i didn't have a choice that i was you know when you (laughs) when you raise money you're sort of saying okay like i've taken the choice to raise money now i have no choice otherwise this is what i'm doing for the next five years right you're basically stuck with it which can yeah. be great. I think being stuck with a problem is sometimes a great way to solve it. But sort of having experienced that, having experienced having a team in which I couldn't really walk away from it, et cetera, I sort of am like hyper conscious of it now. And I'm like, I always want to have optionality. And, you know, we have a team, it's 10 people, everyone's remote, everyone's distributed. And it's nice to have a set of expectations that say, hey, yeah, I saw who has this opportunity over here. He's going to go spend 10 hours a week and go figure that out. And that's fine because the company is built in a way to allow for that, to allow everyone in the company right. optionality. You design for that freedom. Absolutely. And you can, right? You just have to do it intentionally. And you frankly cannot do that if you're raising a bunch of money. You have a bunch of people in your cap table. It's very difficult to do both. You have to sort of pick. Are we focusing on the reality of improving the reality of things? Or are we sort of focused on that 10% chance that we might be something really crazy and therefore we're going to sacrifice in these ways within our current reality and so that we can be well positioned to get there if that unfolds? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I can, I can relate so much Sahil to to what you're talking about, you know, where it's know your team, you know, building and running the business for five years, you've been bootstrapped from the beginning, profitable since month one and ups, downs, everything in between, you know, serve thousands of managers worldwide. But the reason I got into this whole thing is freedom and choice. And to say that, 
oh, you know, after living in Chicago for 11 years, you know, I can move to San Francisco because my family's out here or whatever it is, right? I can, you know, go work remotely in Asia for a few months. I did that last year, like whatever that might be. And to your point, I also think that that is different for everyone. I think what I've personally found, and again, just really resonating in your response is it took me a while to figure out what that answer was. And so I'd started two other companies prior to running Know Your Team. And it was those two experiences that were the reason that made me go, oh, I see why I actually want to start a company. It's not for the ego or for, you know, other people to, to think that I'm, you know, doing something cool or whatever. It's because I, you know, I want freedom to be able to live and contribute to other people's lives on the way that I would want. Right. And yeah, what a privilege. And, you know, we encountered so much luck and had so many people helping me along the way to do that, but freedom. So I want to sort of take this now and transfer this, this concept of freedom as we talk about sort of CEOs, leaders, managers in general, because I think the reason why a lot of people aspire to become a leader, whatever that means, right is because they want freedom. They go, oh, if I'm the boss, then I can call the shots, right? Or if I can get promoted from being an engineer to VP of engineering, then I can call the shots. And what's really interesting is, I don't know if one, if you would agree with that, right? Like to to what extent when you do get promoted sort of through that company track or as you become CEO, like, you know, how much more freedom, maybe, you know, you just answer to different people, right? I think that can be debated. Uh, but I do think that that's a driving factor, I guess, you know, for you, like, as you know, a CEO today of Gumroad, with all the experiences that you've had, like, what advice do you have for other leaders who are, yeah, really gravitating towards your story? Um, you know, love this idea of success being, you know, a set of experiences that you feel good about, it's giving you freedom. I mean, what, what advice do you have for, for leaders, whether it's aspiring leaders who are, you know, individual contributors, whether it's CEOs who are 10 years into their business, for them to be leading well? Yeah, I would say that being a boss or a leader does not give you a ton of freedom sometimes. <laughs> you know, I think there is this sort of idealistic vision of a boss that just sort of tells people what to do and everyone works for that person. Sure. It's not really That's how not it how goes. You run road, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no. Luckily, I don't would not enjoy it that much to do that. But uh, in general, like being a boss is and being a CEO is kind of like is allowing other people to tell you what to do, right? I think a leader is like almost like a service job in which your job is to make sure that other people can do the work that they need to be able to do. And totally. you can totally lead from the front when you do that. But it's really, I think, so much of it is about picking great people and then empowering them to solve the problem and giving them the context that you might have with eight years of running the company and sort of being able to see all this stuff, you know, you have more institutional knowledge than anybody else. That's sort of the job of the leaders to make sure that those people are equipped, you know, well, to solve the problem. But like, imagine if you were, I don't know, like fighting a war, and you thought your job as leader was to be the best soldier, right? Like, and you could kill the enemy or whatever, I don't know, probably wouldn't work super well right? Like your your job yeah. is to inspire, to motivate, to teach people. And I think if you are up for that, then being a leader is is something that, you know, I would highly recommend. And definitely the learning of it. You, you learn so much being a leader. But it, yeah, it's not really about telling people what to do, I think, personally. There's some amount of it, I think, but really it's about this is what we're trying to build. This is why I think this is the right approach to building it. This is like the history of the company thus far. What do you think, right? At Gumroad, I would always tell folks like Gumroad is a, is a conversation, not a speech. It's about having a dialogue and bringing mm-hmm. people into the company that are going to like create sort of better discussions and, and, and better products because of it. 
than me sort of being a product visionary and saying, look, like this is what the iPhone should look like. Like now go build it, you know? And I think that's a preference. And I think some people would disagree. I think some people think, no, like the job is in mentality of Elon Musk saying, this is what the master plan looks like. Now just go execute on it. I just don't believe I'm that smart, frankly, to be able to do that. Or you could be very smart in the sense that you realize that in order to effectively make progress towards whatever that thing is, each person has to be bought into why making that progress matters to begin with. Because your plan as Elon could be as beautiful and perfect and visionary as possible. But if the reasons aren't there, if if people don't don't see what's in it for them, right? We're all yeah. sort of inherently selfish. Um, totally. So I absolutely love that insight. Well, Sahil, here's the thing: I could literally talk to you for hours. Mm-hmm. I've got like a million questions like written down here on the notebook. Mm-hmm. But for you know the sake of time and uh, and not wanting to drag this on for forever, uh, one thing I did want to talk about, um, which I don't think we've talked about a ton. I mean, I've interviewed tens and tens and tens of CEOs over the past few years is around confidence. And that was something that when I was reading your piece and, you know, whether it's the tweets that you write or, or, you know, other interviews that you've done that I thought was a really interesting thread is, I mean, how would you say like your confidence as a leader has sort of ebbed and flowed over time with also the success of your business? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I honestly think my confidence has never been higher though the way that I talk about it is probably a little bit different like I don't seem hopefully as cocky or egotistic as I used to be but I think that's mostly because like my competence is like tempered with reality and also with this idea of like surrender like before I felt like I could make the world in my image like I could just sort of will it to be and you sort of need that attitude so it's not gone you know I could totally maybe like get back into that attitude if I have another billion dollar company idea or whatever who knows right life is weird but I think for me like confidence and humility are ideally like two sides of the same coin right where like I think like I don't pretend that raising money was difficult just because I want to fit into the narrative of like oh raising money super hard and like venture capitalists are annoying and whatever It's more just like, look, I know I'm really good at certain things. Like these are my assets that I have. And I'm willing to say that like I don't know these things and I don't understand these things. And writing that piece was sort of, it really forced me to do that, you know, and it forced me to do so super publicly because basically what people could do is apply hindsight and say, hey, you failed to build a billion dollar company. This sentence here says you did this. If you did this thing instead which I can tell you because six years later, five years later, we know the answer, like it would have been better, right? Um, It turns out like very few people actually did that. You know, it happens occasionally. But in general, most people are like, oh, cool. You have way more context on solving that problem than I do. You spent many years trying to solve it and you, you know, you figured it out to some degree, but maybe not to the level or the scale that you were intending to initially. A lot of confidence is just being open and being vulnerable and being like, because what it, what it means is that you have an anchor that you have, you know, an ability to say, look, it doesn't matter these things that I wasn't able to figure out in time or what sure. have you. I still know I'm a really great writer, for example. Um, I'm a, I'm an okay painter. You're you a know. pretty good painter. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah, seen the grams from <laughs> one painter to gram. another. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's, it's like having confidence in those things. It's okay. And it's necessary. I think it's, it's actually necessary if you want to be like humble I think it's just like that essay, I was able to sort of say, look, this is where I failed. These are the things that I learned. This is the story, take it or leave it. 
But the reason I think, or part of the reason that was interesting to people is because I was running a company profitable, successful, you know, we help creators make, you know, $180 million at that point, something like that. And so it was like, okay, I have something to learn from this person because they are competent, because they are relatively successful. And so I can trust that on these things that they're, you know, that they aren't as successful, uh, you know, there's stuff to learn there. Sure. And yep. I think it's important to sort of acknowledge it. Someone, someone called it the other day to me, the beautiful mm-hmm. mess thing. Um, it's also called like the pratfall effect in which like someone making a mistake, if you're attracted to someone sort of broadly attracted mm-hmm. to someone, then making a mistake actually makes them more attractive. But if right. you're not attracted to someone and then they make a mistake, you sort of become less attracted to them. And so it's, right. you know, it's, it's one of these things where like, it's funny, especially since that piece came out and sort of went viral or, or what have you. It's like, I can actually sort of be more humble just for free because I just have to say less because people just know more. And so if I walk into a room and say, Hey, I have this like tech company. It's like this small, tiny startup. That's all I have to say because someone else is going to say, you know, he's the guy that wrote that thing or whatever, you know, he runs Gumroad. It's weird because like the more successful you are, it's actually almost easier to become more likable and more humble because you just sort of, you know, if I walked in a room, no one knew, knew who I was. I'd be like, this is what I've done. Like, this is sure. what I'm good at. Check out my paintings sure. on Instagram or whatever. And then people yeah. are like, dude, you're weird. Like no one cares, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of this kind of this weird thing. It's similar to raising money, right? Like when people want to raise, put money in your startup, you can sort of just say, hey, this is what I'm doing. You don't have to make a hard sell. And actually, I've noticed this tremendously. Um, speaking of confidence, Chris from Wistia, he calls it profitable confidence, this ability that mm-hmm. companies gain when they're profitable to just sort of experiment, do what they want to do because they don't have to necessarily grow at a certain rate or or what have you. You know, they can take a risk. If it doesn't work, great. You're still profitable. You can still continue. Sure. And that I felt in my personal life too, as I've been able to run this sort of sustainable business and been like, I can just try stuff. I can talk to creators all day. We can try out these features. We can take more time on them. We can make sure we're doing it right. We can you know, these things that we never really did as a startup, because we were always trying to like month over month, like that was such a short term focused thing that we were never able to really mm-hmm. plan for the long term and do these weird ideas. And when people love companies and people, it's because they start doing weird stuff, you know, in my view, they're weird. They're sure. doing things that you wouldn't even do, but you're glad that they're doing those things, you know, and telling you about them. That's what makes people likable. And, and I think why people gravitate towards certain people. And so I think confidence is a part of that. It's like putting yourself in a place where you can do those risks. You can really do what you want to do and have confidence in those things. And it becomes like a flywheel, you know, because I just can do what I want and people like that. And then they like it more because I'm doing what I want. And so they engage with me or whatever. And and that gives me more people <laughs> that, you know, it's, it, it's this weird cyclical thing. And so if you can get yourself to a place where you are able to do what you love confidently and openly and authentically it starts paying back in spades because as a company, people see that they want to use companies that do stuff like that. And you don't have to pretend, you know, you don't have to put on a face or drink the Kool-Aid anymore. It's just what it is, you know? Absolutely. Um, I haven't sold someone on using Gumroad in the last two years. I'm just like, this is what I do. If you want to use Gumroad, let me know. I'm happy to help. Otherwise, (laughs) you know, I had an interaction on Twitter the other day. Someone said, hey, you know, and, and at mentioned like Gumroad and all the competitors and said, you know, we want, we have this use case, like how would we do it with your platform or whatever? And, and you know, we haven't been able to figure it out and we're, we run this big business and all these other companies were like, this is how you do it. Or we have this feature. Blah, blah, blah. And I just went into the Gummer account and I was like, 
we do some of this. We don't do most of this. Sorry. Like we just don't like, I'm not going to pretend that we do. You're just honest about it. You know? And, and like people feel that people love that because, and I, and frankly, I can do that because we're profitable. We don't need that new customer. Right. Like who knows what the sort of financial positioning of these other companies. And so I, I guess my point being like, you can learn about confidence. You can read about it. You can understand it, but you can only get it by doing and by being in that place. Right. It's so much easier to be confident when you're profitable, you know. Well, it's easier That's to be confident also when it's when you're delivering on the truth, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, confidence is such an interestingly sort of layered word, and you know, there's so many associations with it. But I think a lot of times when we think of confidence, the one thing we don't think about is belief and yeah. self belief. Yeah. And, and that can be obviously bad and good in a lot of different ways. But I think where it gets dangerous if it's tethered to either too much of external opinions, right? Or if it's not tethered to anything real, right? Yeah. So everyone should hopefully have inherent confidence and self belief in the fact that they are a beautiful, awesome, rad human being, wherever, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, whoever you are, like, there's sort of that baseline. But then sort of like, you know, as whatever you're building or creating or doing that, that confidence should be based off, well, what is, you know, the real value you're providing? Or, you know, are you honest about what you're doing? Are you helping people in the way that you're promising and delivering on that? You know, that's, that's sort of the the confidence to your point that people are attracted to in leaders and in companies. And when it's too much of based off, oh, well, here are the things that we would like to do. Here's who we pretend to be. Here's what we posture about. And the confidence comes from there. People see right through that, to your point. Totally. Yeah. At the end of the day, openness and truth are just unbeatable, right? And if you can do it, then you don't need advice because the advice is just like, well, just keep doing what you love to do and people (laughs) will love it, you know? And if you don't have that, it's very difficult to pretend. You know, it's possible, certainly it must be. But at the end of the day, talking about painting just for a second, like with painting, it's it's like if if, if someone is doing what they love to do versus commissions or something, you can tell and you just need to get to a place and not everyone can be. That's sort of what privilege, Mm -hmm. I think, to a large degree is you need to get to a place where you can do what you love to do. And when you are able to do that, that's when things get really fun. Because then you can wake up, you can just do the thing, you can be open about doing the thing, you can talk about doing the thing. And and that's what people are going to love because they get to sort of see your story and root for you and see you grow and change, which is, you know, that essay, I think one of the reasons it did as well as it did is because I had that time capsule, right? That tomorrow I start building my first billion dollar company that was, you know, eight years ago. And now they have me, they have the stuff that I'm saying now. And so they can literally see a character arc, right? Like a journey over eight years and, you know, 30 200 words or something like that. And so that is really appealing to people. They love stuff mm. like that because I don't know why, I guess, <laughs> but they do. I mean, that's just humans yep. love oh, stories, yeah. right? Yeah, we gravitate towards stories. And I think going back to openness and truth, like sort of exhibit A, right? Mm-hmm. Last, last quick tidbit here, um, your analogy about, you know, painting and, you know, that it's different if you're doing a commission painting versus just painting for yourself. I'm like sort of giggling inside mm-hmm. because I literally just this past weekend finished my first commission piece. And, you know, for a complete stranger, right? First time it's been for just someone I've, I've never met in person. And I was really struggling with it. Like, I always struggle with the painting, like always, as you know. But I was sort of laughing to myself. I was like, oh, this is what happens when you start, people start to pay you for your art. You know, if you don't really have your head on straight or your heart really like right, 
um, how it can very much mess with you. And so I actually really enjoyed the process that it was a painting that took me a lot longer for the size of it than it did, you know, other ones. But I was like, I have to really sort of calibrate and readjust like what I'm really doing this for. It, it was funny to sort of discover that in the process. So yeah. um, very funny. much could relate to what you just <laughs> shared there. <laughs> but um, no, like I said, Sahil could talk to you for a very long time. And so for the sake of our listeners, though, we will end it here. Thank you so much for your openness, for your truth that you've shared. And uh, yeah, so appreciate having you on the heartbeat. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Cool. Thank you.